It's That Stack of Books. I'm Steve Scher with Nancy Pearl and a room full of people. Give yourself some applause. Yes, that's good. It's because they know then we're not making it up. But you're really all here. Uh, Nancy, every once in a while on this show, we've talked about Harper Lee. She seems to be the, uh, the ethereal presence above us. And now there's a big announcement about Harper Lee. Big news, Harper Lee is publishing a new novel in July. It's going to be called Go Set a Watchman, and it was written during the 1950s. It was written before To Kill a Mockingbird, Steve, and when she showed it to an editor, it's about an adult scout finch who comes back to see her dad, Atticus, and in that original manuscript that she wrote, there was a lot of backstory about Scott as a scout as a child, and her editor said to her, gee, there's so much in this backstory, this could make a novel. So she put away the, the manuscript and wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, and then the manuscript somehow disappeared for many years, um, to Kill a Mockingbird was published in 1960, July 15th, I think, 1960. And this new book is going to be published in July. I hope, wouldn't it be great if it was July 15th, 2015, uh, 65 years later. But um, 55 years later, I guess I'm, that's why I'm a reader and not a mathematician. Um, and then the manuscript was lost, basically, it kept in a secure place um, that her lawyer and friend discovered. And it was clipped to a manuscript of a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, the manuscript of To Kill a Mockingbird. And attached to that was, was um, uh, this new book. Harper Lee did not have a copy. Evidently not. So perhaps that explains her quiet for all these years. She was devastated by the loss of her previous book. I'm just going to make that backstory up. Well, she's never said that in an interview. You know, that's what's so interesting. This, this, this didn't come out in any of the interviews that I've ever read with her uh, that she's done. Um, she's 88. Maybe she just forgot where the manuscript was. Wow. Any word on any of her other? Uh, did she continue to write? It, it, the idea was that she never wrote again. I know. That was so romantic, wasn't it, that she wrote this one sort of magical novel that, that everybody, it seems, one of the most beloved novels. And one of, the, one of the novels in which the film is as good as the novel. And not being a film person myself, I don't say that lightly. Um, so, you know, I suppose now we'll find a copy somewhere of um, a new novel by Margaret Mitchell. <laughs> you know, taking Scarlet to New York or something like that. What, what do you think it meant that Harper Lee wrote that one story and that's it? For her, for us? Well, you know, there's some, um, some belief that she wrote... Uh, at least some part of uh, In Cold Blood. And then, of course, it's the other way that many people, you know, a conspiracy theory that Truman Capote really wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, but I don't buy that at all. That does not make any sense to me. Um, you know, it's sort of like 
who who is like Meriwether Lewis when he came back from exploring the Northwest and and you know he said what can I do with my life after that or the astronauts who come back from the moon and say you know they've done they've done it and when you write a book like To Kill a Mockingbird you know what is left for you I mean you've kind of written a book that that has almost universal appeal across languages because it's a child's experience with injustice, things that things that you don't understand. Well, I don't recall reading any interviews with Harper Lee, but over the years. But have you? Biographies, not you know. And there was a recent, a recentish biography of Harper Lee that so she took part in. Yes, although now there's some some uh, an, uh, some controversy about that biography y- y- the person who wrote it said that, she, that Harper Lee and her sister fully her, her uh, fully cooperated and Harper Lee did not feel that way that's my impression have, have has Harper Lee said anything about this book has she made any pronouncements it's all just agents and publishers so so far but Har- but the publisher is HarperCollins, and HarperCollins is publishing an initial printing of two million copies. Not small potatoes there. So. All right. So what are you hoping for, you Nancy Pearl older reader? First of all, what are you hoping for? Uh, you know, I'm I, I I'm prepared to be disappointed. But, um, but um, because I'm a pessimist, the glass is always empty, totally empty. Forget this half-empty nonsense. Um, but, I, but I hope that it'll have as much insight into the human condition as, as To Kill a Mockingbird did. All right, this is that stack of books, Nancy Pearl, a room full of folks, some eating, some, some sipping, some listening. Some have a huge, a huge cinnamon roll that I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to be distributed, I'm sure. Uh, we are at uh, the Brian Corner Cafe in Seattle. So Harper Lee, it's announced that Harper Lee has a new book coming out. I'll add this for all of you, but what does Nancy Pearl, the young reader, remember about that ex- first experience reading To Kill a Mockingbird? Well, I... What I remember about reading To Kill a Mockingbird is how she captured childhood and how Scout's childhood, very different in many ways from my own in Detroit, Michigan, um, still had some of the same. I, I, I knew how Scout felt, and I think Harper Lee knew how I felt growing up in a, in a, in a period that was filled with um, uncertainty and questions that that you didn't get satisfactory answers to. In the book as well. In the book as well. Yeah, yeah it, it, it never did quite. That's why it's remarkable that we as young readers loved it so much because we, well, older, as I remember, older people said to young readers, you need certainty, you need... You need this. And, of course, this book didn't offer that, but everybody had you read it from sixth grade on, as far as I can remember. Yeah, and I think the fact that it's lasted, I mean, I think it speaks to a number of things, it, it kind of universal. Uh, it, I mean, I think a teenager growing up in Sarajevo 
could read that book and 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 love it and and feel that they understood what Scout was going through and that's and that Harper Lee understood what they were going through. So I think there's that universality. But the other part about it is that no matter what you read for, you could you could find it in that book. So if you're someone who loves character-driven fiction, there are the characters. I mean, you can't forget Atticus. You can't forget Scout. I mean, those are the care. Those are the, you know, that that's so central. It's a page turner. I mean, it's a legal thriller in many ways. So there's that aspect. If that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for, you know, sort of a well-evoked setting, if you like to be there, historical fiction now, especially it's historical fiction, in in many ways. But that setting, that well-evoked setting. It's interesting to think about as a legal thriller because that wasn't the dominant sort of uh, kind of books that came out at the time, except for, I guess, Rose Stanley Gardner. Well, also, Anatomy of a Murder uh, came out about that same time, I think, maybe even a little bit earlier. Those are the only two I could think of. Wow. Take me back to my theory that I always talk to Robert Horton about, which is how an actor's roles infuse our understanding of the different properties, because Anatomy of the Murder also had Gregory Peck, right? And and so did To Kill a Mockingbird, and they were both probably spoke to each other in our in our zeitgeist, in our zeitgeist. So I want to ask you folks about your own um, memories of reading To Kill a Mockingbird, and you know if you want to weigh in on what you hope to or don't hope for from this new book. What's it called again? Go set a watchman. Ghost. Go. 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 <laughs> go set a watch. Out. Yeah, I will edit that out. So this is a, what's the name of this book again? Go set a watchman. So I'm going to ask you guys a favor because I will not, even though I have it written down, I'll do a bad job. Will you say my name is or I'm and then say your name and then weigh in just because it's easier for me to edit that way? And, and Ronique, I'm starting with you because you're at the far end of the table. Did you read To Kill a Mockingbird? I did read To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. I actually don't remember reading it as a young person, but I read it probably five or six years ago and absolutely loved it. I mean, it's, it's one of those books that sticks with you and, and you just don't forget it. The characters are amazing. And, and I actually saw the movie too, and I agree with Nancy. The movie was amazing as well. Do you remember why you picked it up? I think I picked it up because I didn't remember reading it as a young person, and I know a lot of young people read it in school, and I thought, since I don't remember reading this, and it was such a powerful book, I need to read it. Huh. Um, yeah, you better do that Hi, for me. I'm Leslie, and uh, I'm sure that I read To Kill a Mockingbird when I was probably 13 or 14 years old, and I identified with it greatly. We lived in a little tiny village in Ohio, but I think what I was entranced with was the descriptions of life in the South and the characters that were so different from the characters that I knew in, in my everyday life. And just the idea that there could be this person who was such a recluse that people formed their own prejudices about him. It was just to me really, really fascinating to see how this young girl was the only one who was able to actually make the connection and understand who that strange person was. Leslie, did you grow up in the South? No, no. Uh, I didn't grow up in the South, and that's why it was so fascinating. 
you could almost smell what the what the leaves were and you know and listen to the listen to the strange sounds. Leslie, have you reread that book recently? No, but I'm going to. But look at how much you remember of it. Oh, I, there was and, so much atmosphere in that book. Yeah. I, I was I lived, you know, out sort of out in the country and spent a lot a lot of time in the woods and by the pond and all that atmosphere was I could really relate to it. Did anybody grow up in the south or are we all mid or northwesterners? I wonder why it resonated so much, even even so, because you can't smell the the kudzu vine if the kudzu vine smells. So I'm Tom, and I think I had a, a similar experience. Uh, I saw the movie first, and as a very young person, relatively young person, uh, and I don't remember too much about it, but then I read the book as an adult and I had totally forgotten if I ever realized the whole business about Boo Ridley and his reclusiveness and I, and I really related to this story being my small town and my neighborhood that I grew up in and wondering who all the different adults were in my neighborhood. There were people that you knew well and there were others that you didn't know well at all, and you heard stories about them, and you wondered who they were, and as a child, you really didn't know who they were. (laughs) Uh, And I think that's a fascinating piece of the story that often isn't talked about. People get into the whole issue of the crime and the killing and the trial and the racism and the southern thing, and they forget about the reclusive Boo Ridley story, which is a very important part of the book. Yeah, I mean, we did all have those those people in our neighborhoods in one form or another, didn't we? People who were sort of uh, behind the behind the door, or you see them coming in, and we were little kids, and they were they were witches and goblins and the like. Um, I have an historical question, and I have my historian next to me. <laughs> so, Robin Lindley. You know, talking about when this book came out and the America of when this book came out, do you, uh, do you remember reading it as a little kid? Have you ever looked back at it in, t- in terms of its historical context? Yeah, I think I saw the movie first before I read the book, but I was thinking it came out in 1960. This is at the beginning of the sit-ins. The Montgomery bus boycott was in 55, 56, and in... Um, 1960, at the beginning of the sit-ins, last week you had the acquittal or the exoneration of nine men who were uh, found guilty and served hard labor uh, because of those sit-ins. And I was thinking about how brave this book was to come from the Southern woman at a time when segregation is still legal. And she's, uh, I think it was set in the 30s, though, wasn't it? Or... uh, but uh, still, it was uh, she really depicts the brutality of um, and the racism of the uh, of the Deep South at that time, and how Atticus Finch is standing up against this social system at great risk to his life, and his kids are involved in that too. And, and uh, it's a cliche, but I I still read these interviews with young lawyers and stuff, and and what influenced them. And To Kill and Mockingbird comes up again and again as an inspiration. Was it, was it uh, 
popular right away when it came out? Did it like jump to the top of the charts? Well, it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1961. So, yeah, you know, it was rec- it was certainly re- critically recognized. Um, it's hard. I, that would be a very interesting question to look back at. I didn't check that. That if I had, I thought of that. I could, we could have checked to see like how many copies it sold <laughs> the, the the first year it came out. Well, what's interesting to think about is that the culture changes through surprising ways, right? And things that we don't always notice. And it'd be interesting to know how that book in 1960 affected the people in 1964, five, and six who decided to be. Freedom Riders, and uh, and to go down to the South. Um, I'm Jennifer, and Jennifer Lee Collins Fredericks, and not a coincidence. That's it was after Harper Lee, um, because that's how much that book meant to my father. Um, I was born in '65, and my father his his very tiny claim to fame is that he knew Annie Laurie, her agent, I guess, and so he had met Harper Lee one time, and um, but so that book was always on the bookshelf. I read it independently at nine, so I was the exact same age as the protagonist. And why I was saying I don't think that it was, um, I don't know if it achieved as much, um, now it's part of the reading list, everybody's saying, and all the, you know, it wasn't so then, I know, at least in, in New Jersey, New York, because I remember I brought it in, um, just it was my, you know, independent reading. And I remember the teacher saying to me, do your parents know you're reading this book? And he wasn't saying it in, he just, I think he recognized that there's adult topics in there. And I said, yeah, it's their book, you know. Um, but I recognize, obviously, that I wasn't getting all the layers at nine. But at nine, it was so, I read it so many times that I can tell you every sensation, everybody's talking how atmospheric. It absolutely was central to my belief system and, and created everything that I care about today. I can't go back and read it. I haven't read it in 40 years, so I can tell you every page of it, but I haven't gone back because I'm scared to. I did try and see the movie, and I differ in my opinion of the movie just because the protagonist was so, um, it was scout in the book to me as a nine-year-old reading it. Watching the movie, it was Atticus. And I don't know really what the reality of the book is anymore. I don't know if Atticus, if I read it, the book as an adult, if I would see Atticus as a protagonist. But that experience reading it as a nine-year-old and rereading and rereading, um, I don't want to go back and, and, and mar that. And I, I couldn't look at the movie fairly um, because it might be true to exactly to the book, but um, that wasn't you know, who I was reading it and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, it's fabulous. Did you reread it in the last adult life? I, no, uh-uh, I didn't. But, you know, she did, it was not written for nine-year-olds. You know, that's what's so interesting, that, that it was written. I mean, Atticus was the main, yes, you yes, know, I think, I think. But I think that, you're, that what you're describing is, especially when you said, Jennifer, oh, you, you were aware that you weren't getting all the layers. You know, that's why I think this is a different topic, but that's why I think that kids should be allowed to read whatever they want because kids are going to get out of a book exactly what they're ready to get out of a book. And so, you know, when parents ask me, oh, should my child, you know, my, or, or when they say even, let's do it the other way, when they say, oh, my seven-year-old read all the Harry Potter books and loved them, that's great, but but when you're seven, 
the darkness of Harry Potter is not the same as when you're 15 or 16 and you could get the, the fullness of it. So that I, I was very happy to hear you say that it validated my beliefs. Who else uh, has something to say about having read To Kill a Mockingbird or uh, trepidations or hopes you have for this new book? My, na my name is Judy. Um, when I read it, I would have been brought up in a very isolated environment, a big city, but a very, and it, I had no idea that this, uh, the racial conditions down in the South, it just opened my eyes. How old were you? Oh, I was in my 20s. For some people, it was the first book that they ever read that had a person of color, an African American in it. And I think that that was, um, you know, when we think back to 1960, there were not that many books that had um, kids, uh, people of color in it, in them. Decades a long time. Think about Ishmael Reed and Yellowback Broke Down Radio. We had, I remember having to read that book and that was, yeah. that's all it was. Yeah. Yeah, Sherman Alexie had a comment on the radio today that you may have heard that he said, I think he read it when he was about nine, he said, but it was the first book he read when white society was standing up for a non-white person, and it was a novel about justice, so it really struck him, and it, he identified with it as a Native American. He said, boy, these, there's a white person standing up for a person of color. <laughs> so I'm Sarah Hunter. The first time I read it, I was young too, and at that time, I didn't think Scout was, I mean, she was okay, you know. Um, it didn't occur to me that she was anything more than okay at that time. But then I reread it as an adult, and that was when, A, I got the whole thing, I understood the plot. But B, Scout's precociousness really came out for me as after I became an adult. And that was when she became this incredibly nuanced character. And that was so fun for me because I never saw the movie. So when I read it, it looks like, you know, those film clips from the 60s <laughs> in my head. But, um, but it was fun to read it as an adult because she became this very, very multifaceted character that I hadn't appreciated before. Because before I just assumed she was just like me. So it was really, it was a good experience, <laughs> both times. <laughs> All right, well, that's on your reading list. So in, uh, when's this coming out? July? July. All right, so in July. Uh, and I was just going to ask Nancy a question. I heard of the theory today that the reason there was the gap about publishing it was not because that it had been misplaced, but that her sister who passed away in November was in charge of what got out in the public and what was published. And that they said it was not a coincidence that okay, that sister passed in November, she was a lawyer and she was in charge of everything, and now here it is January and it's being released. I, I didn't know if you had any um, buy-in to that, but... Um. Well, I knew that her, she and her sister were very close, and, and I know that her sister had a lot to do with, you know, the, as the executor of all of that, but I had not heard that. That's very interesting, because the person who found it, who air quotes found it, um, is uh, um, an attorney and a friend uh, of, of um, Harper Lee's. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to wait for further details. Machinations. Oh, I'm sure we'll get them. In this culture, there's going to be a, there's going to be a Twitter feed. All right, so you have your assignment, Go Set a Watchman, published in, the, uh, in July, and uh, you all have to read it.
It's That Stack of Books. I'm Steve Scher. John Valiant's novel, The Jaguar's Children, takes place just across the Mexican border in Arizona, where a group of migrants are stranded in a tanker truck, a water tanker truck, and they've been abandoned. And one, one guy, Hector, is trying to figure out a way out by using his phone. John, thanks for meeting me in the library, by the way. Ah, what a beautiful space to be in. Now, I, can I ask you the, the snarky question before? A little magical realism in this book. How did you get a phone battery to last four days? Did oh. you test it out? Yeah, no, there's, uh, well, he actually, I, I really thought, you know, I'm a nonfiction guy, and I really thought through a lot of the technical details. And uh, the battery situation, he actually only speaks for about nine hours. And the thing about, you know, that we don't realize about rural Mexicans is they know a lot about conservation. You know, you might live in a pueblo that has no electricity. And so you can only charge it when you go to the market town. But everyone has cell phones, up, uh, even in these very remote places. And people know how to take care of their batteries. And the other thing that I put in is kind of a, uh, uh, is there's a battery called a Mugen, which is an aftermarket uh, product that can last for days. And uh, the man who, whose phone it is has that on there. And I, it is referred to in the book, actually. Cesar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I have a, a few uh, safety mechanisms to ensure that, uh, that we've, we got power. Yeah, you've yeah. got to have power. Uh, you, this is your first novel. It is. Is yeah. it your first fiction writing totally? You know, I, in, in college, I, I dabbled in it. And I also, uh, years and years ago, tried writing a fantasy adventure trilogy for, for kids. And uh, it, it was a really fun experience, but it is still in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. Um, the Golden Spruce, yeah. The Tiger, award-winning nonfiction books focused on culture, mm-hmm. the environment, these are also these. This book, the Jaguar's Children, is focused on the environment, culture, the changes in politics. Why did you decide that this was a this was a story to be told through a fictional form? This, it, you know, it's really I think about finding the proper container, and and there's something about the the issues that are, that are that are come to light in this book are ones that have actually been percolating in me for honestly since childhood. And that's partly because of this family connection to Mexico, but also because growing up in the Northeast, I was always fascinated by the Southwest and by that, you know, really the open wound of the border. And, you know, ever since I, you know, started to get, you know, nonfiction inklings and, and restless feet, I, I would go there and explore. And I've actually spent a lot of time on both sides of the border exploring around and seeing many things there. People are afraid of the border right now, especially on the Mexican side. Yeah. Americans are afraid of yeah. the border area. I saw a review that said that you know this is this Jaguar Children's a great contribution to border literature because there is a culture there as well that, that that transcends the border. But how did you how did you move around and not feel that fear? You know, I mean, it's sort of like you know getting news from Yugoslavia in the mid '90s. You know, you just hear about you know. The, the, the battle lines and, and the casualties, but most people are simply living their lives. And on the border, there, is, there are these you know, added risks and dangers and very real threats, but those are um, localized for the most part. And um, 
there are ways to find your way around that. And, and, it's, and I think also, you know, just the, the nature of media and the nature of, of especially Americans' anxiety about the border, all that um, is, is heightened and accentuated. And I live in Canada now, and Canadians have a very different attitude toward Mexico than Americans do. They, they go there on vacation and have a great time. You know, they, they don't, you know, and, they, and they, they are not inundated with uh, the terrifying media that, you know, that Americans are, are bathed in daily. Yeah, that's a good image, bathed in. Um, it's, it, it's definitely shaping our perceptions, of course, and our politics. That's part of what this book is about, is trying to humanize the, the people we see as migrants or the, or the men that we see at the Home Depot looking for work uh, in the morning, right? Yeah, I mean, if, if you know, they're, most of us don't have good enough Spanish or, or, or the time or the interest to engage them in conversation, but almost all of them have come an extraordinary distance, especially to be up in the state of Washington. But Oaxaca, where this story is set, is 1,200, 1,400 miles from the U.S. border. So it's, it's an odyssey just to get to the border, and that's really where, you know, and, and all kinds of things might happen to you. You know, you might be you know, robbed by the police or, or shaken down by soldiers. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a very risky journey. And then once you get to the border, oh, there's a, all those same things can happen to you again. And then you make it across the border, and there are a lot of people who are not particularly glad to see you. And it's... Uh, so when you think of the gauntlet that these folks have gone through, it's, it's extraordinary. And I wanted to... Kind of tell one of those stories. Now, I read that you were in Oaxaca working on your previous book, getting it ready. Your wife and you had moved down there. Your family had moved down there. But so what's the personal connection for John Valiant in, in Oaxaca? It's, uh, you know, I just uh, learned about some more about it about four days ago when I was visiting my uncle, and he brought out these photos from that my great-grandfather had. And my great-grandfather was raised on a big farm family in Indiana, and went to college there in Franklin, Indiana, and disgraced himself by bringing a cow into the college chapel. And I think it was, you know, a kind of adolescent way of expressing his frustration with being in Franklin, Indiana. Anyway, he was, he was essentially banished from the town. It, it was a, a full-on disgrace, and his aunt gave him some money. This was around 1898-99, and said, go and make something of yourself. And she did not mean go to Muncie, Indiana or Chicago and make something of yourself. Get out of here. And he went to Oaxaca. And I've seen photographs just from a few days ago of you know, where he worked on this plantation down in, in the southern part of the state, right near Guatemala. And he then went up to Mexico City. Uh, this is right during the revolution, founded a very profitable bank. That's where my grandmother was born. Uh, she was educated in the northeast of the U.S., uh, but she met my grandfather, who was studying archaeology at Harvard in the 20s, down in Mexico City, you know, at my grandfather's, great-grandfather's house. They fell in love. My grandfather went on, this is uh, uh, my, my grandmother's husband, uh, went on to write what was, for two generations, the definitive history of the Aztec nation. A very heavy book, and he did incredible work. And, I mean, there are these other bizarre family connections, like even the title of the Jaguar's Children, which is borrowed from a uh, pre-Columbian uh, ceramics expedition, uh, exhibition uh, from the mid-1960s, I finally got a copy of that book and looked at it, 
and whose name is in there all through it but my grandfather's who and he happened to be very interested in this notion of the were jaguar as in werewolf these human jaguar transformations that took place in Olmec art and Olmec is kind of the mother culture of a lot of these Central American uh, cultures and he helped discover that and it was so you know so there's it's sort of skipped a generation but this jaguar fascination has emerged again really completely organically and then to find that I have named uh, my book after this catalog the contents of which I did not know until about a month ago is just uncanny and wonderful you could say a magical realist I guess yeah I mean, that is magical, especially considering that the issues you're dealing with, issues of agriculture, issues of NAFTA, issues of acceptance, Mm -hmm. you know, resonate across the border. Yeah, and and they really, you know, they weren't necessarily issues in my grandfather's time. He was kind of looking from a different angle, but, uh, and and these issues that are are shaping and influencing uh, Oaxacan culture um, in ways that we don't really feel, you know, and, and, you know, to, to understand that, you know, in, in, in Oaxaca, it's, this is where corn comes from. This is where over 7,000 years, 8,000 years, it was developed into what we recognize as corn today. And, it, you know, the birthplace of what is now the most valuable crop in the world. Uh, and the combination of NAFTA and the introduction of GMOs has uh, threatened not only that lifestyle, but the integrity of that crop. And... Uh, of that product and also of the culture. And there's a saying down there, there you know, without corn, uh, there is no country. And, you know, corn is to, you know, many rural Oaxacanos what the salmon and the cedar are to peoples of the Northwest Coast. It's, it's, it's just part of your identity. It's not this thing that's outside you. Well, you have uh, uh, a Hector's uh, grandfather talking about a hollowed-out um, a shell of a place yeah. and a worm eating it away from yeah. the inside. I mean, is that what Oaxaca feels like? It's. I mean, in places, this this idea of 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 mass emigration uh, and and it, it didn't always used to be this way because it used to be, you know, one in three Oaxacanos statistically heads up to the states at some point to work. Huh. What used to happen is, you know, until maybe the, well, until until you know Clinton sort of got tough on the border. Um, is you could go up there, you'd do your three months in, you know, following the harvest, you'd come back down, you'd bring the money with you, you'd reconnect with your children, with your wife, with your culture, you'd be back in time for your village fiesta, and you'd be integrated back into it. Now, it's so dangerous and difficult to get across that many people, once they get across, if they survive the journey, don't come back because it's so hard to get back. So they're still sending money through Western Union, but but they are broken off from the family. And that has done, you know, enormous damage to the social fabric because, you know, a lot of these Pueblos run like New England villages. Um, everybody volunteers for positions. But if the guy who was going to be a good mayor is in Tacoma, um, who's going to be the mayor? Maybe his wife will be. Maybe she'll be a great mayor. But, um, but there's this, there is this, you do see this hollowing out of the adult core. And, and how's that affecting the young people coming up? Their, their role models and their opportunities? Well, I mean, in, in, you know, it's, it's hard to generalize, but, you know, the grandparents generally remain behind. The little kids remain behind. Um, so there is still connection there. But, you know, imagine, you know, ha- having your dad gone for six months or six years. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, um, uh, it's expensive, you know, at the emotional level and at the cultural level. And so 
that is you know a, a current and ongoing issue for people living down there. And you know, one thing that might be helpful to realize is is that there are 16 different indigenous languages spoken in Oaxaca, and among them, 100 dialects. It's an extraordinarily rich and complex place, and these languages are spoken. These are not dying languages like they are in the Northwest. These are languages spoken by every generation, and you can still find, especially elders, grandparents, who never even bothered to learn Spanish despite 500 years of conquest. So it's, there's, a, there's, a lot, there's still a lot of cultural integrity in there and uh, down there, and, and there's you know, tremendous strength in that. You know, between the language and the culture and the connection to the land, you know, that, that forms this, a cultural tripod that's very hard to shake. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when you wrote The Jaguar's Children, um, John Valiant, you, you, uh, you had to create... Hector, who is a he's, a he's a college dropout, but he's educated and he has his own desires. That's why he's heading north. And Cesar, his friend, Cesar, yeah, yeah. Uh, who's a geneticist. Mm-hmm. And there's a subplot about an important subplot about corn and corn genetics and GMOs. Uh, what, if anything, gave you some trepidation about creating, <laughs> you know, Mexican characters? Yeah. You know, I I would not have done it uh, if I hadn't been invited to do it. And and what I mean by that is, you know, I, I saw these issues, you know, playing out, and I was looking for a nonfiction hook. You know, even though I was frankly exhausted from writing the Tiger for the past three years and wanted just wanted a break. But uh, what happened in January of 2010? Uh, I was sitting at my desk in Oaxaca, and you know, I'd, I'd seen a lot at that point. Been down there for five months, and this voice came into my head and said. I'm sorry to bother you, but I need some assistance. And, you know, I, I really identify strongly as a journalist and, and as a nonfictioneer. And, you know, I, I take dictation from people I interview, just like you do. And I look at records and transcripts of things. But I don't take, I don't usually get missives from the ether. And here it was. And, I, and so it was weird enough that I wrote it down. I was at my computer. And then it was, became quickly apparent that... This was a young man. He was from Oaxaca. He was trapped inside a water truck, of which I'd seen many driving around Oaxaca. Uh, and he was in deep distress. So I wrote all this down, and I thought, ha. And, and his voice was really clear to me. And so I, I, you know, I kept writing that, and I got maybe 10,000 words over the next couple of months. And then, oh. and then you know, I, but it, it was, I was just sketching. I was just, you know, again... A novel is a new form for me, and I, you know, I was nervous about it and wasn't sure where it would go. And I was also really focused on the tiger. And then the tiger came out, so I'm promoting the tiger and very much, you know, in Russia feline mode. And uh, and then in 2011, I had the opportunity to go to a writers' retreat for six weeks, and I blew out a draft of this novel there, you know, very raw, rough. But there was the story, you know, beginning to end. And then, you know, we've been refining it since and, and you know, working on uh, Hector's voice and Caesar's voice and his grandfather's voice. And, you know, because you know, the, the, the nonfiction training has come in really handy because it, one of the things it does is it creates real ang- a well-founded anxiety about getting things wrong. And so I educated myself enough to be able to... Uh, speak about the things that these characters are speaking about and then I ran it by Mexicans and I also ran the manuscript by people who know Oaxaca very very well 
and just said, you know, look, where are the false notes? You know, where am I getting it wrong? And, and you know, is this, you know, you know patronizing or, a, you know, a caricature? And um, they, you know, all those parts are gone now. And oh, you uh, had, there, were, there were some, you know, a, f- a few. I mean, I got to say, I, I one thing I've learned from writing nonfiction and interviewing a lot of people, you know, like you, you know, I've, I have good ears. You know, I know when it sounds false or flat or 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 contrived. And so I really tried to, you know, what did I hear down there? What was the tone? What was the mood? What was the emotion? What are the anxieties? What are the real issues? And in that sense, let that experience guide me through these characters. And it really is, a col- and that's where fiction's different. It's a collaborative process. The, the, the characters are, are telling you what's important to them. And I, I, I can't really, it's, it's almost like a guided hallucination. It's a very different space to, to inhabit as a writer. Was it fun? I'll, you can drink that coffee. Yeah, that's the, the beauty of editing. Yeah, yeah. Is this is the noise of that I'll freezer going to be? Uh, it, it'll be uh, here, but I'll make it work. Um, it's the nonfiction adventure is you know the physical adventure of going to some place you've never been and then having people say things to you that you just can't believe uh, anyone would say or or discovering things about their lives that are extraordinary and likewise with um, fiction. You know, you start work at 7 or 8 in the morning and you'll end up in a place at noon or at 4 in the afternoon that you have done things, seen things, and heard things that just were not in your mind when you started. And it's, it's, that part is thrilling. And uh, especially when you're writing, you know, I'm not writing about middle-class America. You know, that's, everyone says, you know, write what you know. And uh, there's a wonderful writer named Jonathan D. Uh, and he said to a colleague of mine, don't write what you know, write what you want to know. And that, that's the drive for me, is that deep, motivating curiosity. And that, that goes with fiction and nonfiction. They're, it's what you've learned. They're, they're very complementary in that way. It's, that's the same impulse. And, and, that, and that deep satisfaction in achieving you know, a, a successful verisimilitude, you know, it, it really does sound like that. And i, I got to say, I was, I was interviewed by a Mexican journalist from New York, about this book and he said you know you know I, I saw the book and then I saw the face of the person writing it and 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 he said you know I was rather concerned and uh and then he said after the interview and after having read the book he said um between you and me for a white guy you really understand the Mexican psyche and it's because I paid attention it's not because I you know am terribly intuitive or anything but I was down there and I really listened and watched and perceived and that's what good journalists do and and that's you know it's it's a kind of exercise and a kind of enlightened empathy a conscious empathy I think that's our job you know you you have this language that I really enjoy do you remember this part right here do you remember just just, I don't know if you want to read a little bit yeah, or not. Sure. Oh, I just, I, I just, if you could set it up, but I also just like this little story. You can go to the end of the paragraph to the next page. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, Abuelo, grandfather, is this character who's very, very important for Hector. And, and one reason he tells so many stories in this book <clears throat> is because he is trapped and potentially about to die. And, and 
how he's not able to physically remove himself from this tank, but mentally, narratively, he can. And it's and that um, there's a, an amazing book by, uh, by Leslie Marmon Silco called Ceremony, and in it, there's this quote that has been ringing in my ears since 1982, and that is, "I'll tell you something about stories. They're not just entertainment. Don't be fooled. They're all we have. You see." all we have to fight off illness and death. And I don't know why that has always resonated for me, but this book is an exploration of that idea. And so he tells stories about his grandfather, and he recounts stories that his grandfather told him. And his grandfather came of age during the Mexican Revolution as a, as a young man, and he really lived in the old Mexico. And, you know, there were duels and there was, you know, incredible racism and oppression, you know, which continues today, but this was in a different form. And um, so his uh, grandfather is a guy who's also very skeptical of the Catholic Church and is much more tied into the Zapotec animism. And, you know, the Jaguar is a much more meaningful figure, meaningful deity to him than Jesus or Mary are, even though he is married to a devout Christian. So here he's... Um, describing this story uh, about uh, a fight he got into in, in the market, and this is around 1928. Unia, he says in Zapotec. In this time, I have no wife or child, and I'm short, but not as short as now. It is the market in Placalula, Sunday, and it must be April or May because it is hotter than hell, and I'm going there to sell some turkeys. You will see why I remember this, and also the terrible music. Well, I had a late start that morning. He smiled and took a drink from his thumb. Already, I was walking many hours in the heat from the village with a headache and my borrow and the turkeys in the baskets, one on each side, and I heard the music even before I came into the Zocalo. This music, if you must call it that, is caused by an accordion, and when I get to the Zocalo, I look for it because I'm wondering to myself, who can be making such sounds? It is like an animal doing this. Onia... You know the cantina opposite the church. Sitting by the wall there is an indio I don't recognize. He is the one with the accordion, and he is playing La Adelita over and over, so out of tune it is like he's torturing her. Maybe the accordion is broken, or probably he is drunk. And now that I am close, I can hear also that this cabron is trying to sing. It is a kind of moaning that is so wrong, I think he must be an imbecile, and I don't understand why he's tolerated. I just think that's very funny. It's a good story. By the way, he had a drink from his thumb. Like this, you know, that, that indicator. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, sound, or the lack of it, uh, uh, the wind, and uh, sweat and blood are and water all through this book mm. and uh elements elements the elements so elements that that uh we're a little much more removed from right yeah yeah we're in this beautiful air-conditioned space and uh you know mexico rural mexico is nothing if not earthy and uh you know people butcher animals and there's meat hanging up everywhere and the smells of life and death are close and present all the time yeah you uh i think it's hector says towards the end why can't we be uh, uh the united states of a mexica of a mexica yeah. is that possible it's happening 
you know, it's happening right now. There are counties in Washington that are 40% Mexican, and there are many counties like that along the border. And if you look at the, you know, the historic boundaries of Mexico, which reach way up, you know, all the way to Colorado, uh, there are a lot of Latinos living there. And when you look at the contributions that uh, Latin America has made to our society, to our culture at every level, you know, it would be so interesting to, to remove all that, that color, nuance, texture, and history for a moment. And, you know, we would look like, well, we might look like Canada or, or, or Norway. You know, it's, it's, I, I don't think it's hard to fully realize and assess the debt. And it's uh, deep and profound, and it's, it's only going to increase. You know, it's really just a matter of time. And, you know, the, I, don't, I don't say that in a fatalistic way, but I, as a, a kind of somewhat objective student of migration and what our natural impulse is, uh, I think it's, you know, it's, it's just it's ongoing and will become more deeply blended as we go. Yeah, but you're speaking right to the fears of, the, of the, those guys that line up on the border in, in uh, Arizona or the, the senators and congressmen who refuse to pass a, an immigration law. I mean, you, you're speaking right to their fears. Yeah. Uh, they have their fingers in a dike, but yeah. they don't see the contributions. They, it's, you know, the, and, and the thing is, it's very... I don't either want to romanticize it. You know, there are enormous problems that come along with that, but when, but when you look at the criminal element, there is a blindness to the American contribution to that criminal element, both in terms of the market for drugs and the quarter million weapons that are annually smuggled into Mexico from the United States. You know, so we are, you know, in that sense, manufacturing uh, our own problems uh, and exporting them. And so it's, uh, no one said it would be simple or easy, but this momentum that is centuries old arguably millennia old is going to outlast any term in congress that's for sure a lot of this book well there are the th- one of the themes in this book is nafta the north american free trade agreement which so now as the nonfiction writer you're looking at it and saying it's done terrible damage and mexicans and are saying it and americans saying it's done terrible damage to the to the core of mexico's economy the agricultural core um so I mean, our pressure to the south is transforming Mexico in, in fundamental ways, too. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And there are people who have benefited from that, but who is not benefiting from it are the campesinos, the rural farmers. And if the United States has been allowed to dump literally millions of tons of rock-bottom priced corn into the Mexican market, undermining people who are growing the real stuff, uh, and that is devastating if, if all you know how to do is grow corn. And so uh, that's another reason there's so much migration, you know, to the U.S. And even though it's at an all-time low now, in, you could argue, you know, that the, the damage is done. And so what there is in Mexico, in Oaxaca in particular, Oaxaca is kind of a holdout, as is Chiapas, of traditional Mexican culture and values. And there there are people down there who are literally fighting for their lives and livelihoods, trying to protect the integrity of the corn, the integrity of the land. And there's a lot of pressure from within Mexico to privatize these community-held lands. And most of um, Mexico, in a sense, has been privatized. And, and one of the last bastions of that, that 
communal resistance uh, are in these uh, rural areas in, in uh, Oaxaca and uh, Chiapas. Mm. And I think there's a lesson to be learned from them because they understand what's really valuable to have control over your water, to have control over your soil, to have control over the seeds that you plant, harvest, save, and replant. That, that's true independence. That's true freedom. And that is being undermined now by you know, big agricultural companies who are wanting to, well, use our seed. And then there's this notion that I didn't know about until I got to know Cesar uh, and started researching it. There are these uh, seeds that are called vigerts or suicide seeds, which have uh, ribosome inhibitor proteins implanted into the DNA such that when you try to plant this seed again, it will self-destruct. And think about it. This, these are civilizations that built pyramids, that uh, mapped the stars, that understood the concept of zero and developed their own alphabets, and they did it on the back of corn. And imagine what that means to suddenly be indebted to a foreigner, beholden to a foreigner for a viable seed. You know, it's, it's anathema, and, and it's morally wrong. You know, uh, there's a scene in the book where we meet a jaguar, a collared jaguar. Um, just uh, where is the jaguar today in this story and in Mexico? Honestly, I think uh, the, the jaguar is in much better condition than the tiger is. Um, it doesn't... The, it doesn't have the, 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 the there isn't the Asian market for it that there, there is for tigers and there are still jaguars in Oaxaca there are jaguars that are making their way up all the way through Mexico into Arizona and New Mexico uh, these are generally transient males but they are surviving the trip they're finding things to eat and uh, it's still a part of their world and also ours and it's almost like an emissary you know these this, this these are jungle creatures and you can see them in the desert in arizona and it's there aren't very many of them but they used to uh spread much further i think over to louisiana and up to kansas but um that's uh and the jaguar for peoples of central america is a, is a totemic being a, a kind of a, a grandparent you know much as you know, the eagle, the orca, the bear might be for peoples of the northwest coast. And so it's, um, it's a relative. Uh, the, the tanker truck, the water tanker, Agua, and it's got graffiti on it, a J yeah. at the beginning and an R at the end, yeah. Jaguar, Agua. So there's the connection of water, also a totemic yeah. element. Yeah. Uh, was that serendipity? That that notion of the, the, the Jaguar-Agua connection, that hit me early on in my arrival to Oaxaca. One reason, because there's a lot of graffiti now around Oaxaca because of the terrible political strife they've suffered in the past couple of years. But also, you know, I'm a, I'm a word guy, so I'm just looking at the word agua, you know, which is the word for water, and then look at the word jaguar, and it's, you know, very clear that they one fits inside the other. And I, and I was, well, you know, has anybody done anything with that? You know, does that, is there an etymological origin for that? And um, I couldn't find one, but it was so fascinating and compelling to me, especially in the context of Oaxaca, that, you know, I had to explore it. Yeah. So tell me something. Did you, uh, did you answer their 
call because it is the very first few words. Hello, I'm sorry to bother you, but I need your assistance. Yeah. So at the end of this novel, how'd you do? I said or put down everything that Hector and Caesar and his abuelo and his mother said to me. So I... Yeah, I spent three years listening and uh, exploring those voices, those stories, those histories. And I feel very proud and satisfied with this book. You know, as, as a first attempt at fiction, as an attempt to um, be a conduit for another civilization uh, and a, a series of very, very pressing, pressing current events that affect everyone in the Americas. Um, I, I feel like I faced it as bravely and honestly as I could. John Valiant's book is The Jaguar's Children, a novel. We're at the uh, Seattle Public Library talking about it. Thank you, John. Oh, it's such a pleasure to talk about it with you. You can find us at That Stack of Books on Twitter, thatstackofbooks.com. You can find us on Stitcher, on iTunes, uh, really in the ether in many places. And uh, keep reading. Talk to you again next week.